Welcome to the podcast of the National Institute for Health Research, the NIHR. This is an episode in the series Conversations about Diabetes Research. Digital technology is making it easier for people living with diabetes to self-manage their condition. This episode explores the cutting-edge research that has led to advancement of these technologies and what the future holds. My name is Dr. Neil Hill, and I'm a consultant in diabetes and endocrinology at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust, as well as the speciality lead for diabetes for the NIHR Clinical Research Network, Northwest London. And I'm Ruben Lewis, a research delivery manager at the NIHR Clinical Research Network, Northwest London. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So I'm really pleased to uh, welcome Professor Nick Oliver, he is a diabetes consultant at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust and also Professor of uh, Human Metabolism at Imperial College London and an expert in diabetes technology. And well, I'll let you talk a bit further, Nick. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, Many thanks for inviting me. So my name is Nick Oliver. I work at Imperial. That's both the college uh, and the trust in West London. And I'm also Division 2 lead for the NIHR local research network in North West London. So my interest clinically is looking after people, mostly adults with type 1 diabetes and helping them to self-manage effectively and safely. And my research intersects with that very nicely in that we look at how people can use new technologies and how we can design new technologies to help people to self-manage more safely and effectively, and hopefully to make their lives with type 1 diabetes less burdensome uh, and to reduce the later risk of complications. Thanks, Nick. We've actually called this uh, podcast Diabetes Digital Devices. Um, And obviously, you can choose your research area, and you could have chosen sort of any area in, in diabetes. Why do you have a particular interest in the in technology? So I ended up doing diabetes because I worked at Hillingdon Hospital in the early 2000s, and I worked for a consultant called Rowan Hilson, who later became National Clinical Director for Diabetes. And she was inspiring in, in how she supported people living with diabetes, uh, was a fantastic physician, and I'm sure still is, though she's now retired, uh, and encouraged and supported me to, to be a, a diabetologist. And that, that was how I got into doing diabetes. I've always been a nerd. I've always liked technology and gadgets and I, and I never I don't think envisaged that that they would intersect but when I was a, a registrar at St Mary's Hospital in the middle of the 2000s the Institute of Biomedical Engineering at Imperial College was set up by uh, a guy called Chris Tumazuk who's now um, Regis Engineering Professor so he's the Queen's Engineer so he set up this institute and he was looking for a clinician to work on some technologies that happened to be diabetes focused and I and I was in, in the right firing line at the right, at the right time. And he asked me to come and work with him and it enabled me to really develop skills with technologies, working with engineers and to develop some new technologies. So it was really serendipity and being in the right place at the right time and it, and it intersected with pre-existing interests and, and being a bit of a geek. It's interesting how serendipity plays a role in people's research careers, isn't it? Um, so what do you think... Um, What research in the past has really advanced the utility of technology for people that they might be using today, for example, Nick? So there there are are a few landmark studies. So one of the nice things about working in technology in diabetes is that really there wasn't very much before 1999 or so when the first continuous glucose sensors started to become available. 
and most of the technology that we use um, and develop now hinges around that, that glucose information as a, as, a, as a part of the system. Um, there, were, there were a few things in there before then, but in, and in some ways you might argue that diabetes has always been technology-based. People have always used novel syringes and insulin delivery devices in the 1980s with the first capillary blood glucose monitors. So, so there's always been new technologies, but the things that, that people are using now and that, that people are really seeing benefit from are things like continuous glucose sensors. And one of the landmark studies was in 2008, shortly after I'd got into diabetes technology, and that was the JDRF study. And that, that has changed access and, uh, and technology for people living with type 1 diabetes. And really importantly, in that study, they recruited children, young adults, adolescents, and older adults. And they were really agnostic and really supported getting an evidence base of technology across the life cycle of type 1 diabetes. And that was one of those really landmark moments. And then after that, we've had a few landmark studies in artificial um, intelligence and, and in artificial pancreas technologies. And again, those have been really um, important in getting those technologies into people's hands. And we now have three commercially available automated insulin delivery devices in the UK that wouldn't have happened were it not for those studies over the last five years or so. So it's really interesting that you mentioned access. Um, I often, when I think about technology, uh, I think about uh, cost and I think about uh, whether actually people can access these technologies. Uh, I, do you think, you know, the, you mentioned how research enabled better access to these technologies. Could you just explain a little bit about that? Do you think there are any barriers for people who might be listening on the podcast to you know, accessing these current technologies today for diabetes care? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we're very lucky in some ways in the UK for lots of reasons, but, but most importantly, because we have an NHS uh, and the NHS enables equitable access, hopefully, to novel technologies in a way that, that doesn't discriminate based, based on socioeconomic background or, or age or, or any other characteristic. And that's enabled by nice guidance and, and by, by guidelines that we follow. So we're very fortunate to have that. There is still, of course, some, some variants and some, some issues around accessibility that are, that are difficult to address. But um, I suppose one of, the, one of the real challenges at the moment is that technology moves very quickly. And these conventional ways of assessing clinical and, and really importantly, cost effectiveness for technologies aren't necessarily as responsive as the evidence base. So it used to be said that, that drugs take over a decade to get from preclinical into, into final marketing. Devices can go through much more quickly. And we see nice guidance for type 1 diabetes that was written in 2015 is being revised this year. But already you can see that some of the technology components of that, of that guideline are, are out of date. So one of the challenges is how do we keep guidance and, and the evidence base up together and, and how do we keep them in a, in a, in a way that, that's coordinated. So I think that's one of the challenges. But, but in terms of barriers, one of the barriers is that we don't have the right evidence base always. So I, say, I said earlier that the 2008 CGM study was landmark in, in showing us continuous glucose monitoring was effective. But it took many years after that for us to actually have support from NICE guidance. And that's because we used to select participants for studies who often already were doing very well with their diabetes. And actually what we need to do is to say, who's finding this really difficult? Who, who finds their type 1 diabetes really challenging? And how do we help them the most? So actually, I think some of this is about how we generate an evidence base 
And how do we select participants for studies in a way that shows a benefit in people who stand to benefit the most? But it's also then about how do we translate that rapidly into guidance and guidelines? And how do we ensure that that accessibility is communicated on the ground? Because you've got commissioning structures and general practitioners and, and provider trusts and lots of other people who are involved in this. And it can be challenging sometimes to disseminate that equally across a large population. So if, if COVID has shown us anything, it's that change can happen rapidly, even in the NHS. We can deliver vaccines in a stratified risk-associated way to millions of people very quickly where there's a will. So these things are, are possible. It's just about how we do it on the ground and how we do it effectively and rapidly. That, that ties in nicely to, to my next question, which is what current research are you working on at the moment in this area? And, and how would interested people get involved with that, please? So our, our research has been hit a little bit by uh, coronavirus pandemic, and we've had some of our studies that have been delayed, but at the moment our, our recruiting and active studies are looking at severe hypoglycemia in people in London who, who have a visit from the London Ambulance Service, and we're just about to restart recruitment to that. We're looking at the accuracy of continuous glucose sensor devices in people with diabetes who have hemodialysis for kidney failure. Uh, we're looking at how we support people to make decisions. As, as you know, Neil, people with type 1 diabetes make multiple decisions every day about carbohydrate and insulin and activity and food and alcohol and stress and, and a million other things. And how do we support the people to make decisions that are, that are the best at the time? So we have some, some devices and some ways, hopefully, to support that that we're looking at in a randomised controlled trial. And we've got some studies, hopefully, opening up later this year looking at novel ways to use automated insulin delivery, so that's continuous glucose monitors and pumps. And we've got studies more widely in the group. Uh, Neil, you're running studies in, in people with stroke and in people doing exercise. And we've got other studies looking at continuous glucose monitoring in, in young, young adults with diabetes who are finding self-management challenging. Very happy for people to, to contact us to discuss those. We have a, a web page on the Imperial College London website that lists most of our recruiting studies. Uh, and a quick Google uh, will find me or the group, and you're very welcome to contact me, or, or indeed you, I'd have thought. Yeah, Neil. absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, so we, we will ensure, if you're listening to this and uh, you didn't get all that information, we will ensure the appropriate links are uh, under the podcast that you clicked. So it, this, it's, it's clear, Nick, that there's, there's just there's lots and lots going on. And actually, in the net, you've mentioned the next sort of six months, uh, things happening. I wondered if you could uh, dust off your digital crystal ball and just sort of look into the next sort of 20 years and almost sort of out outline what, what kind of exciting technological developments there might be for diabetes care. And then obviously, while you're at it, check out if there are any future pandemics, because then I would probably just stock up on loo roll in advance. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, just, you know, just tell me a little bit about uh, where diabetes care is going and what it might look like in 20 years, if you can. I think 20 years is really hard, isn't it? George Alberti, who we work with um, and who is one of those um, very senior, hugely highly respected researchers in diabetes always tells a story about how when he did the first artificial pancreas studies in 1978 when he was at Southampton uh, and he presented it at a meeting and somebody said Professor Alberti when do you think patients will be able to use this and he said 
five years and that was in 1978 and we've only just really had them more recently so I think we're very bad at seeing beyond five years I think it's a sort of horizon that we can just about conceive of for 20 years I've retired by then Ruben so you know who knows what what could have possibly happened I think broadly we're going to have technology is not going away is it so so I mean technology is my interest but actually more broadly across diabetes we've got new classes of drugs that have become available in the last few years and we're going to get better at using them so drugs are the same as technologies that they they get released and, and they're initially for a smallish group of people and then we work out who really benefits and where they're most clinically and cost effective and they find their home and their niche so, so it'll be interesting to see how the new drugs that we've had recently find their, find their way. And there are some new drugs coming down the track. There are new classes of drugs and there are new drugs within existing classes that will, again, hopefully help us to, to support people to self-manage more effectively. And one of the really interesting things is that there's a, 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 an oral version, so a tablet version of semaglutide, which is a GLP-1 receptor agonist for people with type 2 diabetes, and normally, up until now, that has been an injection, but we now have an oral version of that. So that'll be very interesting. We're going to see more technologies. They're going to be smaller. They're going to be lower power. They're going to be more intelligent. And they're going to be able to support people to do more. And they'll hopefully be more accurate and precise, both at monitoring and delivering insulin. Uh, and we might see some newer insulins that are faster acting and even some newer insulins that are much slower acting. So... We're going to push those boundaries of, of, of duration of action of insulin so that people with basal insulin needs can have them that last longer. And, and we're getting closer to physiology and what the body normally does with the faster acting insulins. Um, so it, it's exciting and it never stops moving. So the only thing I can guarantee about that, Ruben, is that it will all be wrong because who knows what's around the corner and it's all exciting. Well, if the if the last year hasn't hasn't indicated that, then uh, then <laughs> yeah. no, nothing will. But I suppose I, I just have a little point about that because I suppose what you mentioned about self management is probably going to look like it will be a key theme. I would imagine in, in diabetes care, where where once you know 10, 15 years ago, people would have to go to their local hospital. Now they largely, especially in type two diabetes, would go to their GP. And, and maybe it is being pushed more and more into the fact that actually you could probably manage a lot of stuff at home with very little face-to-face uh, -face time, possibly. Do, do you think that's, that's likely? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. We, we changed our model of care in, within the last year, but what we don't know is what is the most effective way to deliver remote care to support people living with diabetes. And we've got a whole evidence base of, of things being delivered face to face but we've got no idea how to convert those things to virtual and remote consultation models so so that I, it's opened a whole new theme of research i don't i don't think anyone even necessarily knows how best to do the research let alone how best to answer the questions so um it, it's a real watch this space isn't it and it'll be really exciting to see what comes out we're never going to go back i don't think to, to how we delivered care 18 months ago so we will see in the next year or two how we deliver care for the future and, and whether that is as clinically effective and acceptable to people with diabetes and I suppose the other thing is that, that, that we need to be careful that we don't create a new group of people that, that find it hard to engage with clinical services yeah. so that so there are, there, are, there are new concepts around digital inclusion that, that we need to really think about with consultation that we'd never have thought about a year or two ago. Yeah well thank you Nick I mean that's that's been a real tour de force in in explaining where we've been, where we're at and where we're going to in terms of diabetes and some of the technological 
advances that, that have happened and are on the way. This was an episode of the NIHR podcast, part of our Conversations About Diabetes research series. I'm Dr. Neil Hill. And I'm Ruben Lewis. Thank you for listening. For more information about the NIHR, you can visit our website, www.nihr.ac.uk or find us on Twitter at NIHR Research. <laughs>